0: It is good to worship God together today. I'm glad that you're with us. If you're visiting, thanks for joining us today. Um, I hope at some time in your life you've had the pleasure of reading Frog and Toad together. As the story goes, Toad made the best batch of cookies he had ever made. Uh, He immediately shared them with Frog who exclaimed they were the best cookies he had ever eaten. They ate many cookies, one after another. Frog realized they would be sick if they did not stop eating cookies, so he told Toad, and Toad agreed, and they decided to stop after one last cookie, which they joyfully ate. There were still a lot of cookies left, so they decided to eat one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad, as he ate another cookie. Yes, said Frog reaching for another cookie. They decided they needed willpower. So Frog put the cookies in a box, convinced they would no longer eat the cookies. Toad said, but we can open the box. So Frog tied a rope around the box, no longer worried about eating the cookies. Toad said, but we can cut the string and open the box. So Frog got a ladder and put the box on a high shelf, satisfied they would no longer eat cookies, Toad said. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down and cut the string and open the box. So Frog climbed the ladder, took down the box, untied the string, opened the box, and rushed outside and offered them to the birds who ate them all. Now we have no cookies to eat, said Toad sadly. Not even one. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. (laughs) You may keep it all, Frog, said Toad. I am going home now to bake a cake. (laughs) I think we can all relate to Frog and Toad. The struggle to do what we know we ought to do. Knowing we want to avoid something or we want to pursue something else and yet finding it rather difficult to do what we need to do. It may be eating cookies or or cake or pizza, or perhaps it's getting exercise, or maybe something far more serious, Uh, the sins we struggle with, pride, materialism, lust, greed, selfishness, anger, bitterness, envy. Perhaps Like frog, we put boxes around the things that tempt us. We tie them up with a string, we put them up on a high shelf, we make them hard to get to, but that doesn't deal with the root problem, the problem of our will, our desires, our sinful flesh, and so we find that we continue to struggle with sin and temptation, because the problem is so deep that rules can't fix it. As we study our passage in Colossians today, we find a similar problem. There are people who are teaching the Colossians that they can best grow by following a set of rules and regulations, by doing a set of works. If you do these things, you can achieve what you want. If you put up these barriers, then you can experience what will truly fulfill you. But just as frog and toad couldn't quit eating cookies simply by setting up a a, a series of rules and barriers, God's people do not grow simply by setting up barriers and rules. Turn to Colossians, if you would, Colossians chapter 2. It will help you if you have your own Bible and you open it today. Uh, If you're using the church Bibles, uh, this would be on page page 984, page 984, Uh, even Christians, who recognize that we are saved by faith and not works, often act as if our growth in Christ will come through a set of works. And Paul is very clear that as saved people, we can't begin looking to our works. Just as we're saved by faith in Christ, we grow by faith in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, today we're studying verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Therefore... from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray together. God, our Father, you are so gracious to us. You're so merciful and kind. We were far from you, and in Christ you have brought us near Lord, we so often find ourselves far from you. We're so quick to follow after sinful pleasures. And then in response, we're so quick to set up rules and regulations as if the rules are the things that will make us like Christ. Lord, help us constantly to look to Christ, to cling to Christ, to hold fast to the head, that we would turn from sin by faith, by following after you, by seeing Christ as sufficient, knowing that he has accomplished entirely the work of redemption. Lord, we thank you for the people that are here today. Everyone who has gathered in your name to worship you. Lord, I thank you for those who have gathered with us today who do not yet know you. And I ask that even this morning you would open their hearts to see their sin. To see the depth of sin. And to see that your grace is sufficient. To see that Jesus Christ and his work on the cross is sufficient. And he has done all the work of salvation. Lord, if there are even Christians here this morning who are in sin, who know they're in rebellion against you, I ask that you would turn their hearts even now. Would Help them to see the beauty of Christ and what he's done for us. And in faith to turn from that sin and to pursue righteousness. Lord, we thank you for your church, both here locally and throughout the world. Thank you for our other Uh, friends here in San Antonio from many churches that faithfully preach the gospel. i pray this morning um, for my friend Josh Collins and his church up in Spring Branch and ask that you would bless them. They would have a great time of worship and joy together today. May your name be proclaimed and may you be glorified. Lord, we know it's you that does these things anywhere in your church. We pray for your people throughout this world who are suffering today. Uh, Christians, in places where it is not legal to be a faithful follower of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would grant them rest and peace, that you would even change the hearts of their government, uh, that they would allow freedom. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have. May we be faithful to use that freedom to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. The key point of this passage is that Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. Do not pursue righteousness in rules, because Christ is your righteousness. The Colossians are being challenged in some way about various kinds of works and worship, and Paul is calling them to keep looking to Christ himself. We'll see three main points in our text today. First, you are not judged by works because of Christ. Second, you are not disqualified by works because of Christ. Third, because of Christ, do not submit to works or regulations. You are not judged by works because of Christ. You are not disqualified by works because of Christ. Because of Christ, do not submit to works or regulations. I want you as we study God's Word together, consider your own life And whether there are ways that you are looking to your own works for righteousness. Examine if there are rules you have created, even subtle rules that you lean on instead of Christ's. Are there regulations that you have made, uh, perhaps that are wise for yourself, but that you have made into a law for everyone else as well? It's so easy for us to set up a system of guidelines for our lives that may be helpful and useful in some ways, but... Which become the standard by which we measure ourselves and the standard by which we measure others. And we can come to believe that obeying the rules is the key to righteousness. As we study God's word today, we're reminded the only thing that secures our righteousness is Christ himself. So first main point, you are judged, excuse me, you are not judged by works because of Christ. You're not judged by works because of Christ, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Therefore, let no one pass judgment. So Paul begins the section with therefore, which ties us back to what Paul has already been teaching us about the Lord Jesus Christ, about our being filled with Christ, who is the fullness of God, and with Christ completing the work of salvation, overcoming his enemies, all these things, this is what Paul's pointing us back to. Therefore, because of who Christ is, because of what he has done, therefore, don't let anyone pass judgment. And then he lists these various things they can't pass judgment on you about. These things Paul has taught about Jesus and his fullness and his work are not just doctrine to be acknowledged. These doctrines are relevant to our lives. These doctrines are practical. So the completeness of the work of Christ is not only a glorious truth to believe in, but it has real-world, everyday value to us. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, Do not let people judge you based on a set of rules that they have created. No one can pass judgment on you as a Christian because of a set of rules that they demand, but which Scripture does not demand. You must not be a Christian because you, whatever the rules are. And then Paul lists out some specific things that Colossians are being judged for. uh, Food and drink regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now this first section, these first two verses, it has a very decidedly Jewish flair. Uh, the Jews were the descendants of Abraham and all who joined them in faith. They followed the law of Moses or the Mosaic law, which was the set of rules that God gave to Israel after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And these things that Paul mentions all have to do with the Mosaic law, food or drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, The Mosaic Law had a whole set of rules and regulations about what the Jews could and could not eat or drink. Uh, They couldn't eat pork, or shellfish, or catfish, or a whole host of things. And many times, Jews living in Gentile environments, they simply wouldn't even eat meat or drink uh, wine if, if it came from Gentiles, just to be sure that they could remain ceremonially pure and clean. Uh, Also, God established various feasts and festivals in memory of God's great acts of salvation. Uh, Various sacrifices are connected to these festivals. Uh, The Sabbath is the last day of the week, Saturday, and Jews were to do no work on the Sabbath. They also had Sabbath years. Uh, Israel's whole calendar is based on the lunar cycle. Uh, So some sacrifices are tied to this this new moon. So the whole section, the, the food and drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbath, they're referring to the law to its requirements, its observances, its sacrifices. So it seems almost certain that it is Jews who are passing judgment on the Colossians in this context, Uh, potentially Christian Jews, but nevertheless they're Jews, Uh, and they're passing judgment on Christians who no longer follow the Mosaic law, uh, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, but Christians, Christians who ate and drank freely, Uh, Christians who didn't observe festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. You may remember... While Jesus was alive, they actually regularly accused him of these same kinds of things. But the reality is that Jesus always perfectly fulfilled the law. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he did fulfill it. And the beauty of the gospel that we saw last week is that Jesus' perfect righteousness is given to us, his people. Our sin, our failure to keep God's law was applied to Jesus on the cross Our debt to God was nailed to the cross, covered by the blood of Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness is given to us. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, and his perfect standing before God is granted to his people by faith. So you don't have to follow a set of rules and regulations, and in fact, you couldn't do that even if you wanted to. You don't have to become a Jew and follow the Mosaic law to be saved. You must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, everyone who trusts in Christ is granted access to his righteousness. His righteousness is applied to them. So therefore, Christian, let no one pass judgment on you because God looks on you and his judgment towards you is that he looks at you and he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. And verse 17 explains why these... The Mosaic Law, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And the language of shadow versus substance is a common theme in the philosophy of the day. The shadow isn't bad. It simply doesn't have the same ultimate value as what is the substance. So we have a picture of promise and fulfillment. The law was the promise, but Christ is the fulfillment. The law was the picture, but Christ Is the reality the law was the shadow but Christ is the substance so Paul is not in any way condemning the law but he is condemning those who seek righteousness or fullness through the law the law was a shadow of what was to come in Christ Jesus fulfills the law Jesus fulfills the promises Jesus fulfills the sacrifices all these things were a shadow they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So seeing what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, we see the fullness of what the Old Testament legal system was foreshadowing. David Garland writes, The implication is clear. Christ fulfills all Jewish sacrifices and hopes. The future yearned for by the prophets has broken into the present. So listen, don't let people judge you about the shadow when you already have the substance. The law was the shadow. Christ is the substance. So if you let people judge you based on the shadow, you ignore the fact you already have the substance. You have the real thing. You have Christ. Don't let anyone judge you based on a set of works that you do or don't do. Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness is given to his people as a gift by faith. Christ's righteousness, if you're a Christian, is your righteousness. You're not judged by works because of Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, we're glad that you're here with us. This text gives us a good opportunity to share what it is that Christians believe to be true. Uh, the reality is we all deserve judgment for our sin. But this text of Scripture is highlighting We don't overcome the judgment that is due us by doing good works. The Lord Jesus Christ overcame sin on our behalf. Jesus paid the price for sin. You see this, especially in the verses we looked at the last time we met in verses 13 and 14. We see that people were dead in sin, but God made his people alive. For everyone who trusts in Jesus, God forgave our sins Canceled our record of debt. He nailed it to the cross. Jesus was given our sin, and he gives his people his own righteousness. If you're not a Christian, you can be reconciled to God by faith. By recognizing, believing, acknowledging who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved From their sin. We don't look to our works to save us. They never could save us. Christ completed all the work of salvation. And those who set their faith on Jesus are not judged by their works, but by the work of Christ. So Jewish legalism isn't the most common uh, problem in the church today. Um, But it does still exist. In some churches, there are still people pointing to aspects of the Mosaic Law as being binding Uh, Beyond the Mosaic Law, though, the church still struggles in many ways with various kinds of legalism. Uh, People still pass judgment on others based on how they eat or drink or how they don't eat and don't drink. Uh, We're tempted to judge ourselves or others uh, based on rules that we make up uh, that are not in any way biblical rules. We set up all these rules for our lives and, and then we determine whether we're living righteously based on am I doing the rules I set up. Are other people living righteously based on the rules that I set up? The movies people watch, the clothes they wear, where they go on vacation, how much money they spend, how they spend their time. And all these rules and regulations, it has no bearing on their status before God. It's only something we've made up in our own mind. Paul's point is, you are not judged by works because of Christ. Second main point You are not disqualified by works because of Christ. You're not disqualified by works because of Christ. Verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Don't let people judge you. Don't let people disqualify you. The word behind disqualifying, um, it had previously been used in athletic contests uh, and judges, right? So you had to fit the criteria or the rules to be qualified, and if you don't meet the criteria or the rules, then you are disqualified. And the idea here is that people who have set themselves up as the ones who will determine who is qualified and who is not. They have their own set of criteria that they've made up, their own rules to be followed, and you better match up, or they disqualify you. And again, Paul gives us some very specific examples of the types of disqualifiers that they're insisting on. And you'll notice the second list doesn't seem to have as much to do with the Mosaic Law or Judaism. Uh, it is possible these teachings are Jewish, uh, but they seem to be including teachings and in philosophies that are not intrinsic to Judaism. And the first qualifier in verse 18 is insisting on asceticism. Uh, This is a really hard word to translate. All the possible meanings of the word are connected to humility in some way, Uh, but Paul's condemning it, so no one translate this as humility in the positive sense. In this context, there's clearly some negative connotation of humility, and so it's normally translated false humility, self-abasement, self-denial, or as we see here, asceticism. I think that's the best translation in the context Asceticism says you have to reject all the pleasures of the world to be truly in tune with God to be qualified you have a set of rules that set yourself apart from the world you deny its pleasures so you don't enjoy good food and good drink you don't even if you're married you don't enjoy a sexual relationship you don't own possessions other than the very bare minimum you need to live And even then, sometimes you'll borrow those things instead. So to be truly spiritual, you live this ascetic lifestyle of denial, uh, living off in the wilderness by yourself. Uh, We had some friends a few years ago who bought a tiny house. And it introduced me to the tiny house movement. Uh, In some ways, it's actually a pretty cool movement. Uh, People realizing a big house with lots of space isn't a necessity. It can kind of force you to give up things that you don't really need. But within that movement, within the tiny house movement, if you look at blogs about it and stuff, there's actually uh, a part of the movement that essentially says this is the way to live. It is morally superior to have a tiny house, it is immoral to have a large house filled with things. And within that movement, that that subset that's saying it's bad to have what we would consider a normal size house, it's the same aesthetic philosophy. Uh, Things are bad, and therefore you shouldn't have them. that's the thing Paul's talking about here. Or perhaps you dare to eat food that isn't locally grown. Uh, You eat more than beans and rice because you, you really have to have the luxury of enjoyable food. I mean, you know, meat is a very expensive form of protein. Let's not get started about the cost of cheese or wine. Next thing you know, you're going to be wasting your money adding spice to food. You clearly want to enjoy your food too much. And you definitely don't eat out, right? I mean, that's just money down the drain. I'm obviously being a little extreme here, but people really do make rules that are ascetic in nature, requiring themselves, requiring other people to deny enjoyment, to avoid spending any kind of money that isn't absolutely necessary to survival. Now, it may be very wise for you to choose... uh, food that is not expensive, and you can certainly save a lot of money if you don't eat out regularly. Uh, But do you make rules about these things that you essentially make as qualifiers of who is in, who is out, who is wise, who is foolish, who is godly, who is not? We do. We can all make rules like that. The second qualifier is worship of angels. The Greco-Roman religion had a whole pantheon of gods, Some of them were greater and some were lesser, and the greater gods didn't usually get involved in day-to-day life uh, of mere mortals, but the lower gods kind of got involved, and it's possible this idea is being kind of transported into Christianity, so God is too big, too great to be concerned about you, uh, but the angels are close, and so we're going to worship them, they're more likely to respond to us, we're going to give them reverence, Uh, so perhaps Uh, In the hope that angels might intervene in their life, they're praying to angels. We don't know the exact details here. but, But the big picture is that they're giving some kind of reverence to angels, reverence that belongs only to God. This is perhaps one reason why the book of Hebrews and other books make it clear Jesus is superior to the angels. When an angel speaks to the Apostle John late in the book of Revelation, John falls down as to worship the angel, and the angel directs directs him to worship God alone. So, Angels are not to be worshipped, but this group in Colossae is insisting on worship of angels. You may have noticed this fascination with angels in our world today. Uh, There are movies and TV shows about angels, books about angels, drawings and art about angels, In some circles of Christianity, there are speakers who go around telling their various theories about angels and demons and powers. God's Word never directs us to be preoccupied with angels. Angels are real, and so are demons, but they're not to be worshipped. Angels are simply created beings like us, and the consistent message of Scripture is not to set our focus on angels, but to set our focus on Jesus Christ. And that's the same message we see here as well. The third qualifier is that this group goes on in detail about visions. Now this is somewhat speculative, but it may be that the part of the asceticism that we already talked about, and that we mentioned, was fasting that was designed to put people into a state of being ready to receive a vision. And we do know medically today that people who are starved or dehydrated are more likely to have hallucinations. It was possible that those things were connected. But whatever is causing these so-called visions, the people, the the Colossians that they're dealing with here, they are going on about these visions as if they are the most important and urgent thing. We have the same sort of thing in our day today. People with visions, uh, books written about people who supposedly died and went to heaven and came back. In a couple cases, people who went to hell and came back. People claiming to be, have been taken into the presence of God. So there are people, so they're seeking to disqualify others, insisting on these things. But what do we see is actually true of these people? Such a person is, end of verse 18, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. These people going on about these things are prideful, he says, and they are not holding fast to Christ. They have this intense fascination with things that are not from Christ, and they have failed to hold fast to Christ. Pride is the root of many sins. And in this case, their their pride has caused them to look outside of Christ to determine who is really connected to Christ. (coughs) And the irony of all this is that while they're looking outside of Christ to disqualify others, they're not themselves holding fast to Christ. They're so busy looking at these other things that they aren't looking to Christ himself. And that tends to happen. When we try to find fullness from something besides Christ. When we think growth and holiness comes from something besides Christ, when we think our walk with God is maintained through something besides Christ, we start looking to those things, whatever they are, instead of looking to Christ. And if we base our spirituality in any way on our works, it always leads to pride. Because then my spiritual life comes back to me and to my works in so many ways, rather than to Christ and what he has done. The reality is that Christ is what we need. He has completely accomplished salvation for his people, and he provides everything that we need for a life of godliness. He's the head of the body, the church. He provides the nourishment. He knits us together as his people. He provides the growth that comes from God. True growth, Paul says, comes from holding fast to the head. True growth comes through the work of the Spirit. True growth comes from God. So when we start looking to our works to make us qualified, we're focused entirely in the wrong direction. Our focus should be on Christ. As American Christians, we may find it a little surprising that Paul focuses on how the whole church together grows with a growth from God. We tend to be very individualistic about our faith, viewing salvation especially entirely in personal terms Paul is saying that the opponents individually are not holding fast to the head but there is this corporate reality that the whole body is nourished and knit together there is joints and ligaments growing with the growth that is from God we are connected to the body of Christ like a body is held together by joints and ligaments and the whole body is important we need the other parts of the body to live Just as we're joined to Christ, we are joined to the other members of the church. We're not independent of the church. The church grows together. We overcome sin together. We need each other in the battle against sin and unbelief. Christianity is not just a right set of doctrines to believe, but the person of Christ and the community of his people. The church with all its messiness, with all its problems, still represents the family of God, and God expects us to participate in that family. David Garland writes that in all ages, the kind of people Paul describes here, puffed up by censors' minds, take one look at the church and say to themselves, You mean this is it? You mean this is all there is? Only what the simple-minded woman and the acneed kid can understand only what that half-educated preacher is teaching. The church isn't that impressive to the world. but The church is the body of Christ. We all grow together. If we think we're above the church, if we think we no longer need the church, it's only because, like Paul says here, we are puffed up by our own sensuous mind. We don't realize God has saved us to be part of the family of God, nourished and knit together by Christ himself. You're not disqualified by works because of Christ. Third main point. Because of Christ, do not submit to works or regulations. Because of Christ, do not submit to works or regulations. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the good body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now notice that Paul has switched the order of his argument here. In the first two sections, Paul gave what the opponents were doing and then said it's wrong because of Christ. And here he points to Christ and says, Because of Christ, why do you submit to these rules and regulations? So Paul's saying, If you died with Christ and you did, why do you submit to these things? And this isn't set up as a question, as if Paul isn't sure that they died with Christ. But if they did, then they should consider this. No, Paul's saying, Since you died with Christ, therefore quit acting as if you haven't died with Christ. But the reason Paul's written this the way he has is to force all readers to consider, is this true of me? Have I died with Christ? Does Jesus Christ represent me? He represents everyone who believes in him. Is that me? And then for Christians, recognizing that we do believe in Jesus, knowing that we're united in Christ, and thus dead to sin, dead to the evil of the world, his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His life is our life. And therefore, his righteousness is our righteousness. So if with Christ I have died to the elemental things of the world, why am I acting as if I'm still alive with them? The evil world system no longer has any control over me. I'm no longer alive to it in that way. And since I'm dead to these things, why do I submit to regulations about them as if they were still alive to me, as if they still controlled me? Again, Paul highlights the regulations themselves in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations treat the physical world as something that has control over us and and which we must avoid at all costs. So we have to separate ourselves from the world. We have to avoid the pleasures of the world Be careful lest you even touch these things. One commentator says the false teachers here are commanding Christians to essentially shut oneself up in a purity cocoon. You may know that, in fact, in the early centuries of the church, there were ascetics who lived exactly like this. Uh, They gave everything away. They only bland and cheap food. Uh, If they were married, they really quit having a sexual relationship with with their spouse because They believed they had to separate themselves from the elemental things of the world. And Paul's point here is, if you died with Christ to those things, then you don't have to submit to these made-up rules and regulations about them. And notice how Paul continues, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These things all perish as they're used. It's not clear if Paul is saying that things involved perish with use or that these man-made regulations themselves will perish. It seems he's referring, though, to the things being used. Uh, And food is the most obvious illustration of that point. You eat food once, and it's gone. You don't get to eat it again after that. And Jesus said, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of your mouth. So why do you treat food as something not to taste when you just use it up and then it's gone. White food is something that can contaminate you. If God has offered up something for us to enjoy that is good, don't make up fake regulations about it. And the end of verse 22 really highlights the problem here. These regulations are all according to human precepts and teachings and not according to Christ. These are human rules and regulations, not God's. In earlier times, Israel had the Mosaic law they were to follow. Uh, And if you know Israel's history, over time they failed to obey the law. And so because of that, different rabbis and their followings established their own rules that expanded on the law and built the law to put a fence around the law to help people ensure they obeyed the law. And these secondary rules and regulations were given equal weight over time to God's law itself. And so when Jesus was on earth, he's constantly battling with the Pharisees and Sadducees because they had their own commandments that they gave equal weight to God's commandments. And the situation in Colossae seems to be much the same. Human precepts and teachings give an equal weight with Scripture. Sure, you have Christ, and that's good, but you also have to do all these things. You have to avoid all these other things. If you really want to be pure... If you really want to grow, then this is your list of do's and don'ts. These rules and regulations may seem very pious, but they simply represent human wisdom and not God's wisdom. And the reality, though, is that even though they do seem to have human wisdom, they're actually of very little value. Look at verse 23. These have, indeed, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They look good, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They appear to be wise, but they have no value. Now some translators view the language here as actually saying these rules cause the indulgence of the flesh. So not only are the rules unhelpful, they actually are harmful. Now it is possible, it's not certain... But at minimum, we know these rules that people are counting on, they don't even help. They're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. But why is that? Why is it that rules don't actually help us? Rules don't stop us from indulging in the flesh because our problem is much bigger than rules. If rules could fix us, we wouldn't need Christ in the first place. But our hearts are so desperately wicked The only thing that will turn us is Christ himself. Rules actually put a greater focus on our flesh because they're centered around the desires of the flesh. Rules put ourselves back in charge of our salvation and our sanctification. Rules are useless against the flesh and are powerless compared to the cross. Now before we wrap up, it is important to note Paul is not condemning self-discipline. He isn't condemning white practices. He isn't saying there's no such thing as sin. As we move into chapter 3 next week, we see Paul challenging the Colossians, if you are raised with Christ, then live like it. Put off sin, put on righteousness, and Paul gives various commands that sound like rules. And the difference is that for Paul and for us, it always comes back to Christ. There's nothing wrong with having personal rules that keep you from areas of temptation but it is our nature to begin trusting in the rules instead of Christ and if you trust in the rules you will always fail on the one side our our hearts are very clever at figuring out ways to get around the rules so you have the rule but this isn't in that category so I can do it and on the other hand our hearts are very quick to seek righteousness in keeping the rules I have this thing I want to avoid some sin it's a constant temptation so I don't do this now if I'm, if I'm following that rule, now suddenly I find my righteousness in that rule. If you're counting on the rules to change you, the rules will always fail you. If you're counting on Christ to change you, Christ will always give you the power to change. Because of Christ, do not submit to works or regulations. We don't pursue sanctification by a set of rules, but through Christ's the only ultimate law we are under is under the law of Christ, the law of love. Paul's opponents here are undermining Christ, uh, his, his centrality, his sufficiency. And they've created a religion of rules and self-improvement instead of relying on Christ. And God's solution is far greater than any solution that man could come up with. In Christ, our sinful flesh is nailed to the cross, And because our sinful flesh is nailed to the cross, we are raised with Christ to life. We don't depend on human attainment, but on Christ's atonement. We really trust that we are safe in Christ. We don't let others judge us or disqualify us because of what we do or what we don't do. Because we aren't counting on our works. We are counting on Christ. Let's pray to him now. God, our Father, you are a gracious and kind God. You looked on us in our sin, our constant turning from you, and you had grace and compassion and mercy. And you sent your Son for us. You sent your Son to redeem your people, to be people for your own possession, zealous for good works, to be your eternal possession and reward. Lord, we're so quick to set up rules, to set up regulations, to make ourselves in charge, to forget that you're the only one who accomplishes anything good in us. So Lord, help us. Help us not to look to rules and regulations, but to look to Christ himself, to see that Christ has completed the work of salvation, to see that Christ is sufficient for our sanctification. Lord, may we be people who love you and who are quick to turn from sin, Lord, we praise you for Christ and for all that he has accomplished for us. He's the only one who's sufficient. There's nothing we could add to it. In Jesus' name, amen. In Colossians 11, Paul gives instruction about taking part in the table of the Lord. Uh, There are some people who are eating the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, uh, focused on themselves over against others, not repenting of their sin. And so Paul gives them this instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Before we take the Lord's table, we are all called to examine ourselves. Is there an area in your life where sin has control? Or like we saw in our text today, are there areas where you are counting on rules for your righteousness rather than holding fast to Christ? Set your sin aside and hold fast to Christ. His death is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. And having repented of your sin, come and take the Lord's table, rejoice in His death, His resurrection, and His future return. On the other hand, if you will not set aside your sin, then the Lord's table is not for you. Not today. So let's take a minute and examine our hearts and pray silently. And then I'll call us to come and take together.